business class listeners. Opening today's episode is Maya Isaac. Oh, you're going to love this song. This is one of those songs Lately, that you want to break stuff. Everything's trembling. All my shelters are opening. Just wait for it. Just Feels wait for it. like everything's crumbling. All the windows are shattering. Hold your horses, it's too cold to read. Face expressions that mean nothing. Dip your sadness in this bowl till you feel minor changes in your body. you just want to rage when you hear this song but you want to like break stuff but almost like in celebration right like like you achieved something and like you you got to the top of the mountain and you just want to yell that's that's maya isaac i often like to associate artists on their geographic location and so maya isaac is a singer songwriter originally from mayan baruch in Israel with South African roots. So, you know, I hear Israeli and South African influences in this music, and certainly she has her own style. This is Maya Isaac on Spotify, 31,000 followers. Give her a follow. Especially, again, if you want to look to to break stuff or, or just give a big old, like, yell and, and celebration for achieving something. Tune into Maya Isaac. Anyhow, business class listeners, thanks for tuning into another episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is the show by automotive executives for automotive entrepreneurs. Definitely tune in for the education and stay for the investments. On this particular episode, I get to chat with Rhett Reichert, the dealer principal at Reichert Automotive, who was also a past chairman of NADA, National Automobile Dealers Association. And he's a very outspoken individual, and I'm very thankful and honored that someone like him was comfortable to speak openly and freely on the show. We got into a variety of topics. One of the things that we start off with is with regards to his interview he conducted with Bob Woodward at this past year's NADA show. We also talk about how safety is not always the first thing that a lot of consumers are looking out for when it comes to a vehicle purchase. We get into a little more of the details of the automotive space with regards to the stair-step program versus direct-to-consumer business model. He and I even got into it with regards to the franchise business model versus franchise law. So you'll get to hear some of the arguments that I made his responses to it, and the fact that we basically left it as there's nothing that we can do right now. So that's coming up on the episode. Okay, so just a couple announcements. First thing, on Friday, 
I want to share with you my insights of this hashtag Stop Asian Hate campaign. A prior guest on the show, Maria Frost, shared something with me, and that was it's she finds it incumbent upon herself to do her job in order to help other people articulate their thoughts and ideas. And she certainly still struggles with it, but I will tell you this, listeners, I do find her to be way more articulate than many other people out there. And so it's always nice to get her perspective, the fact that she thinks about it that way, that before she speaks, she wants to be you know, as accurate and honest and objective as possible. And I think that has led me to want to share with you some of my thoughts with regards to the hashtag Stop Asian Hate campaign that is going on. So coming up on Friday, I will share with you my thoughts, and that's exactly what they are. And I just I hope, if it helps, allows you to better articulate this Stop Asian Hate campaign that is going on right now and for the foreseeable future. Okay, last announcement. I was reminded the other day that as I do provide additional information and essentially tips on stocks as a feature companies that are publicly traded. As I have guests that we do provide market analysis of the stock market, there's always the possibility that the information that I share with you, you will be using that for your own your own set of decision making processes. And so you may be executing some trades based on the things that you hear on this show. I won't do this to you often. I promise you that. At the very end of the show, though, just know you will hear. You're going to love this. You're going to hear from Fembot Fiona. You probably already are familiar with Fembot Fiona. But my virtual, she's not even a virtual assistant. She's my Fembot assistant. My Fembot assistant Fiona has a special disclaimer that is at the very end of this episode. Okay, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. I hope you enjoy the show. If this is your first time here, tune in for the education, stay for the investments. If you're a loyal listener of the show, cheers to you. I'll have a little sip of coffee to you. Enjoy this episode. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Welcome and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. And my, oh my, I must say I'm almost quite nervous about this particular episode because there's going to be some serious discussions on this. Furthermore, You may actually hear me in this particular episode take some positions that you have otherwise heard me take the opposite stance on, and that's going to be done intentionally. I'm going to play a little bit of the antagonist on this particular episode because my guest today is a longtime executive in the automotive space, and he is very much in the thick of things. He very much has a certain vision that I admired and I picked up on, and so that's why he's here today. 
So, business class listeners, today's guest is impressive as he is determined. He's a second-generation dealer principal in the state of Ohio and has a long list of honors and accolades that rival the very best of automotive executives in the business. Perhaps, though, his most difficult feat came last year in 2020, where he served as the National Automobile Dealers Association chairman and provided guidance and leadership to 17,000 franchise dealers, helping them navigate the pandemic. While my guest is a 40-year veteran of the automotive business space, I became fully aware of his vision and leadership at this past NEDA conference, which, is, which happened about a few weeks ago. As I'm certain most of you business class listeners attended several virtual conferences during this pandemic, the NADA conference, or better known as the show, was hands down to me the best virtual conference I attended. And if I could give an award to any of the virtual conferences during the pandemic, then my guests and the team at NADA certainly swept first, second, and third place. My guest is a proud Buckeye from Ohio State University here to share more about the politics and culture of the automotive business. Men, women, and children coming to us from Columbus, Ohio, please welcome to the show, Mr. Rhett Reichert. Hello, sir. Hello, Dennis. Thank you for the, uh, for the kind uh, introduction. You never look as good as you do as you do on your resume, as they say. But uh, uh, I really look forward to sharing some uh, reality with a lot of our uh, young minds out there uh, that are looking to this uh, during these COVID and quite unpredictable times. And hopefully I don't have to rehash a lot of old news. I'd like to talk about where we're at and uh, kind of where we're going uh, from an unbiased, opinion, unbiased position being the fact that our family, we carry both domestic and imported vehicles, uh, been around for 40 years and have had the opportunity for the last six years uh, to be in the industry at 80,000 feet. So I can kind of see everything from mobility and autonomy uh, right down to electrification and, and dealers, essential businesses. So, uh, yeah, so we got a lot to talk about and I can't wait to share my thoughts with you and uh, remind everybody that uh, your local automobile dealer, you know, we're, we're trying every day to do the right thing. And, and each day that goes by, uh, we're getting better and better at it. And uh, that's the reason this industry has been around for 108 years. So go ahead. Amen. Amen. Well, sir, I, I think that there's a particular angle, vision, experience, knowledge that you possess that I I haven't seen as much. And certainly, obviously, you dance in circles that all of you and your group, you guys may already embody all of this. So it's it's then good to have someone like you to represent, uh, you know, this, this organization, this network, and this community that's out there. But certainly, as you said, in, look, in kind of looking forward, you can say in a lot of ways that this pandemic is, I hate to use the cliche of the great reset, but that's definitely a term that has been thrown around in, in you know, social circles. But there's definitely this kind of reset of how businesses should be done, what is important to individuals, to families, to businesses. So maybe, you know, let's, let's start, you know, before we get to some of the NADA stuff, let's start with what are some of the more important lessons that you particularly have learned or you've emboldened yourself with out of this pandemic? Yeah, we, there's been a revolution in the retail industry, uh, uh, not only the automobile industry, but any type of industry, especially the packaging, direct uh, uh, deliverables. Uh, but in the automotive industry, uh, the online, which used to take care of about 5% 
of retail sales for automobile dealers is much higher. Uh, customers being able to access information has never been better or more, uh, more granular on the information they can find. Uh, as far as trade-in values, everything, it's, it's been quite healthy actually for the automobile industry. It's been quite healthy for the automobile industry because the automobile dealers themselves have been pushed or uh, should I say encouraged or finally realize we, we better just lay down our guns and let's go ahead and do it this way with online sales and online uh, uh, transactions. And the tools that are out there now, the software tools are over 70% of the vendors at our NADA show were software providers. So you can see that dealerships were kind of archaic in the past on how they operated, but in the last year they accelerated in an exponential fashion to be able to deliver what customers are asking for they want information, they want transparency, they want to be able to get all this information. They want to buy their vehicle and they want to buy a vehicle from a dealer, take delivery of their vehicle and have the amenities, uh, pick up and deliver and these other things uh, that let's, let's, let's face it, you know, quite frankly, if we were able to do it 20 years ago, uh, we, should, uh, we should have done it, but now it is being done and it's all good. Most recent JD Power numbers came out, Dennis, and the dealer satisfaction from customers at dealerships is at an all-time high. It's never been as high as it is now. And, uh, and, and that's just an example of what COVID has done. It's kind of woke everybody up saying, hey, there's a better way to do things. We better start doing them. And, that, and then stretches across, as I said before, all manufacturing and, and, and all commodities and all different types of services provided to everyone from check-in at a doctor's office to be able to check in for your car for service. So uh, I'm excited about it. I, I think it's a revolution that everybody says, well, it's an evolution. I said, no, I, I think this year was a revolution, which is in the middle of an evolution, but we had a revolution in the middle of an evolution and, uh, and get on it because this is where we're headed. The digital world isn't here, it's been here. And it's and the adoption rate is going to even accelerate faster. Yeah, I, I, there's always been that tug of war between the access to information to which now has been democratized amongst consumers and businesses alike. And absolutely dealerships and a lot of businesses in general in the automotive space are providing levels of transparency that have always been sought after, but have not met the customer expectations. But certainly it's there now, and a lot of that has to deal with COVID. So yes, that is the the opportunistic and the optimistic side of th this pandemic. That does actually get us into what I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to talk about, which was your interview with Bob Woodward mm -hmm. and business class listeners. This was, I, I got to tell you, um, at that conference, it only was about twenty minutes of of an interview, but Rhett, you told me off you know off the mic here, off the recording that that interview was actually a lot longer. So maybe tell me what were some of the things that happened on that interview that was not actually published? Well, first of all, you have to have a level of a, you heard him talk about trust during his conversation on how to develop trust for a good interview as a journalist. But he had already participated at the Washington conference with then chairman Charlie Gilchrist on a question and answer in Washington, D.C. in front of a thousand people. So he knew that he had a level of trust from us that we were going to ask some very poignant questions, but at the same time, uh, not try to track over uh, any any dirty laundry. And everybody has some issues that cause too much hysteria, and we want to make sure we didn't touch on those. But when I had an opportunity to interview Bob, he is what a wonderful person, first of all. And I felt like I was talking to Yoda, 
you know, out of Star Wars. This this guy knows about anything about everything because he's a student of learning. Look at here yeah, he right. is, older than I am. I'm 64, and he's a student of learning. So our conversation started before we were on the air. And then uh, after we did our recording and afterwards, it was really enjoyable. And quite frankly, uh, we got a little contested at times about the issue of affordability and safety and things like that. And uh, he was very open-minded to listening, but he had a way of gaining your, your, your confidence to know what you can share with you uh, is gonna be, uh, is gonna be uh, what should I say, fairly represented. Yeah, uh, he doesn't yeah. spin things, you know. Uh, people today, he's trying to accurately yeah. represent your thoughts. Yeah, and you ideas. watch elections and you're wondering who's spinning what. When you talk to Bob Woodward, I think he's the, he's the unspinnable master on that. He he uh, he takes information as he gets it, he vets it, he, he finds out, he has a research that he does a lot of research on it, and he just doesn't take things for granted that he sees on the internet and saying, "Well, that must be it," because I googled it and it's got to be true. You know, and, and he mm. teaches his students the same thing. So uh, we talked about safety. Uh, we talked about transactions. We talked about the need for transparency and the continued need for transparency. Uh, we talked about especially safety. Bob is a huge safety person. Uh, as you know, he goes all the way back to Ralph Nader and Ralph kind of kicked mm -hmm. that thing off back there in the 60s. And um, we had some great conversation during that about the safety of automobiles, how it can be incorporated in automobiles how it can be incorporated cost-effectively. And then uh, quite frankly, the difficulty we have in the automobile industry is when we surveyed thousands of customers through the NADA, and it's been surveyed through Cox Automotive, it's been surveyed through JD Power, as many surveys you wanna do. Safety isn't the number one, two or three, or even four thing on a customer's buying list when they buy a car. And I tried to explain mm -hmm. that to Bob that it's not a number one or two or three or four priority, you know. Uh, you know, number one is affordability, and the two is you know uh, dependability. You know, this vehicle. I'm talking to you and 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 your listeners today. Uh, you, they also take a look at uh, the vehicle as far as a fuel mileage, environmental concerns. They look at those as big things. Bef what was what was Bob's argument with regards to why safety should be or or yeah, why it should be the number one concern amongst dealers and manufacturers. And without putting words in his mouth, because I learned through journalism, I won't put words in his mouth, but the drift I got from him is that 39,000 mm -hmm. people dying last year on the freeway were 39,000 too many, right? Mm -hmm. And let's start with 39,000 people dying on freeways last year. And by the way, 2020, it went up to 41,000 with 13% less, I think it's 13% less miles driven. And if you drive on today's freeways, which have a little less traffic, you notice how fast everybody's driving? Or right. is that just in Columbus, Ohio? Right, right. Yeah. Now that's that's the same case over here in California, where especially in Southern California, <clears throat> excuse me, Southern California, all the freeways were wide open. And I mean, even middle of the night, you can hear so many cars and their exhaust systems just, you know, purring their engines and then launching off and you can hear everything in the middle of the night. So certainly speeds were, were excessive uh, in the, you know, the middle of the summer in, in 2020. You know, and that's another argument when you can make the argument for autonomous vehicles, but according to NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety, you know, there's one death on America's freeways for every 100 million miles driven. Yeah. And that lets you know how many miles are being driven in the United States, but also lets you know, car people are pretty darn good drivers you know if you think about yeah. it 
you know, pretty good drivers in the United States. It's obviously a lot higher in a lot of third world countries, but in the United States, not too bad, but it's still, from Bob's standpoint, I believe if you asked him, 39,000 is just too many, no matter what, right? And I guess if you had a family or loved one that was one of the 39,000, you'd agree with him, right? Certainly, yeah. So, uh, but the safety, as we just saw in Tiger Woods, as we that's, that's more of a story that's been inflamed on the media for people to see. I was driving one of the new Genesis uh, G80s and uh, has 10 airbags in it. And he still has uh, severe injuries to his ankles and knees. So I guess that uh, you can flip a car several times. There's no guarantee it's uh, going to save you. But in his case, it did save his life. Probably the safety concerns are that Genesis, which has the most advanced, one of the most advanced safety systems on the road uh, for the automobile. That Hyundai Genesis GV80 is actually it's becoming one of my favorite SUVs. It it looks stunning. I haven't had the chance to drive it, but I saw the exterior. I saw the interior. I haven't felt the inside or play, played around with the infotainment system. But that Genesis GV80 is is high on my radar. I've been recommending it recommending it to to some friends and even my father, who's in the market for a vehicle, for him to take a look at that car. It's that's just a, it's an awesome SUV. I tell all my friends they ask me about the accident. You know, their sales spiked after Tiger's accident. <laughs> but I told them, if you want to compare it, just drive a Lexus. If you drive a Lexus and you drive the Genesis, you're driving pretty much the same car. I mean, they're yeah. very close, very soft, good responsive driving, very rich interiors, very high quality on everything. And and I've said this for years and years and years. And uh, we do carry Korean automobiles, both Kia and Hyundai. You know, I, everybody says, oh, I don't know, it's made in Korea. I said, I remember a day when I grew up when everybody says, you don't want to buy that. You don't want to buy that because it's made in Japan, right? Well, Japan makes a pretty darn good product, right? And I say the same thing about the Korean-made automobiles when I say, well, what kind of phone do you have? You have a Samsung phone? You have a Samsung television in your house? I right. go on and on for the quality of products that are out there. They're pretty amazing. But if you want to know what that car is like, just drive a Lexus. That's pretty, a pretty good indication. It doesn't drive heavy like a Mercedes or a BMW. It's a lighter driving vehicle. But uh, that's, that's a safety thing. And I'm sure that that's Bob Woodward's point. 39,000, too many. So going back to then your interview uh, with with Woodward, so there was a part in in your interview that I, I want to uh, kind of replay the transcript here for you. You had asked Bob, do you think that President Trump's actions and views toward the media impacted the media landscape forever? And do you think the public trust and do you think the public trusts the media today? Do you think that President Trump's actions and view toward the media impacted the media landscape forever and do you think the public trusts the media today yeah uh you know nothing is forever let's hope i think it had an impact and i think a lot of people took it personally in the media and i think that's a mistake i think uh you know we should be uh okay he doesn't like us he calls us fake news he's called me that and uh, just go about our job and try to find out uh, what happened. Trust, uh, there is not a lot of trust in the media in this country. And I've spent time talking to people on both sides and uh, how somebody puts that Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, it's gonna, it's it's a, a giant mission it's got to be done. Obviously, 
as a 40-year dealer principal, you're no stranger to distrust amongst consumers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are some of the things that you've learned along the way on how to rebuild trust? And can the media apply, apply those same lessons? Well, of course it is. You know, it, it just takes, you know, one moment of, of, of BS, and then it takes years and years and years to build back that trust. It's a cultural thing among most businesses. Many people have a bad experience at a business, and they say, well, that that's a reflection on the other, in my case, 600 employees, right? Because I have one person that's rude or uh, curt or uh, unfair or an, an honest with someone. You know, and that's a reflection on the entire business. And you have to understand most businesses to su succeed today, they got brick and mortar and been around 60 or 70 years uh, or even 20 or 30 years, build your model culturally. And when you build your model culturally, you can do that. So I think there's some cultural issues within the media that have to be changed. Such as? I think the cultural issue is that the first to press is the first one to press is the one telling the truth. The first one, the press is going to get all the accolades. The first, the press is going to be the one that's really telling the, the, the truth that everyone else is going to be chasing or trying to disavow for the next two weeks. You know, I think being first anymore is not being correct. I think hmm. being correct. If you listen to Bob's conversation, he talked about that. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting, right? Because uh, I, I believe I, I forget where I hear, hear this from, but it was like anytime you want to get a real hand account of of a car accident, you never want to get the first hand account of someone who was involved. You want to get the secondary account. You want to get some sort of third party, a witness to it, because that will usually be where the truth lies. Yeah. And it's like headline news. If you get the headline news, especially with social media. Right. They can put it on social media to be the very first one. Everyone's got their uh, digital tools and they're going to access it first. And is it is it is it 100 percent correct? For example, the NADA, uh, we have a Ph.D. economist, uh, Patrick, and he has a small staff that work with him and are responsible at the National Auto Dealers Association. We have over a million employees that work at car dealerships. We have over 17,000 dealership locations in the country, almost 18,000 car and truck location, should I say, heavy duty truck. Our responsibility has always been to vet the facts and always speak 100% true for several reasons. Number one, we're representing every dealer in the United States and the truthfulness of our message. Two, we have to be able to go to our Capitol Hill and our state governments and talk to our legislators and give them the truth, unspun, 100% truth. And just because somebody printed it doesn't mean the NADA is going to respoke it. We, we vet those facts, we check them out, double check them, triple check them, and then we release them. And you know something, the NADA isn't historically the first one to come out with news. You'll have other news medias come out with news on different subject matter. But I can assure you, when you open up the NADA newsletter by our 18,000 dealers, they are getting the 100% vetted facts and truth. And that is so important for our ability, as I mentioned before, to talk with our legislators, at when, especially when we have different things, autonomy, mobility, subscription, direct sales, all those things. They need to hear the truth. And that's what the NADA does. We do that 100% of the time. And uh, what happens in the media sometimes, speed is more important than vetting the truth to get that 100% accurate. So how we manage that, Dennis, I don't really know, but I know this. If Bob Woodward thinks it's, imp it's important, 
is damn well should be important to every journalist in this country. Amen to that. Uh, so going to another topic that you and Woodward uh, discussed, and actually this was, I love the fact that during this interview, or at least the part that was showed, it was Woodward asking you a question. <laughs> and so you actually had the opportunity to respond and kind of be on the offensive. And so Woodward asked you, you know, what are the biggest routes to success in your business? If I can ask you, what's sure. the biggest uh, route to success in your business well, I think it was just proven this past year with the COVID-19. I think resiliency, uh, persistence, uh, staying connected to your community always, no matter what, whether it's good or bad, and being able to retain your best people, which the PPP program helped. Uh, you have your people, you have your community, and your, your basic values and virtues. And that's what keeps you perpetuating your business model into the future. And uh, anytime you you forfeit one of those, in my belief, uh, you're going to shorten your uh, tenure. Well, the pandemic and all of the the race riots, the race war, the racial tensions, the gender tensions, all of that stuff, the political ideologies, especially since this it was an election year last year, there was so much toxicity, you could say, that was going around that was it was hard to see the truth. And you certainly have today that there's a lot of corporate environments that have adopted an emphasis on racial justice and gender justice and and whatnot and and having and perpetuating political ideologies that this may seem in contention with some of the beliefs that you stated in your interview with Bob Woodward would that be accurate to say oh no they're actually parallel Okay. Because, because the virtues, you know, your different virtues of your company. I mean, do you have compassion? Do you have diversity? Do you have inclusion? All those different things. I know that in, in our business, for example, and every other business, it woke them up and say, hey, you know, I, we've been doing a lot, but we need to do more. And if you heard Paul Walzer, our current chairman at the NADA show, talk about that in depth. I mean, it wasn't like brush. I mentioned it last year during the, my NADA uh, a presentation in Las Vegas. And I talked about inclusion and diversity, how important it is we have to keep it. I had no idea what would happen during this COVID year and what would happen with the, uh, I think with George Floyd and these other things that happened that would just put, you know, ac accelerate it. But it's good. We're glad it happened. We're good. I mean, not that it happened to George Floyd. That's not the point. We are glad that it raised awareness. We're glad that people pay attention to it because the business community, quite frankly, is a reflection of your community. Your business is a reflection of your community. And if there's things going on you don't know about, we love hearing about those things. You know, that's called that's called that's that's criticism, but it's constructive. Right. To do that. And if one of the virtues of your family, you know, our family's been in, in, in doing business in Columbus for since 1953. And there's dealers that are older than I am going on for years and years and years. And it's going to open up a lot of eyes, but also it lets them know we got to do more and more and more. And we need to do it in a very, it should be part of our culture. It shouldn't be an edict. It shouldn't be something in writing that makes the press feel happy because somebody put something out there in writing to make them think that's what it is. No, it's got to be in the culture of your company. And it starts right from the leader of the company and the ownership of the businesses. And it's got to be what they are truly the virtues and what they believe in. And when that happens, that's what I meant by virtues to Bob Woodward. That's when it's going to work. 
it's not going to work because you spent more money than I did putting out a bigger marketing piece, letting everybody know that this is what we believe in. I, I, I think that that's all, it's all good. And I'm glad it sends a message, but it's got to be part of your, what your, it's got to be part of who you are. I mean, I, there's so much truth and in, in agreement that 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 you're saying there and especially if it's embedded in the culture and it's coming you know more or less top down i would say though that one of the things i believe that has happened though is the overemphasis of diversity and inclusion has also then targeted the idea of equity that there should be these this equality of outcome and certainly you're starting to see where you know for instance be it your major corporations like Coke are running these training programs to be less white. Even Ford, for instance, had somewhat of an uprising where they wanted employees of Ford wanted Ford to stop making police vehicles. And so this is where sometimes it, doesn't that kind of all of a sudden contradict a little bit about trying to embed your business into the community? I don't know. I think the greatest thing about the United States of America is we always find a common level of water at some point in time, right? And we always find a common level of water. And then and then uh, we, we have issues that come up and it raises awareness and why we say, oh, wow, we need to do that. And then it come back. Look, at we've been through oil embargoes in which, you know, probably before you were born, <laughs> you know, in 73, in which, you know, the price- oil, what's oil? I only know electric vehicles. You know what I'm saying? So the price of gas went, I remember in 73, waiting in line of gas out in California. You know, I was out in California at the time, waiting in line to get gas out there too. And everybody's buying diesel vehicles because they thought it was good for the environment, right? They got higher gas mileage, et cetera, and turned around the diesel vehicles at large, at large, aren't better for the environment, right? You know, got you more fuel mileage, et cetera. So everybody ran out and bought diesels to save the gas and then the gas price gas dropped and then they came back and got the gas, brought it back. I think the same thing applies. I, I do have to say this, you know, it's not healthy to have social tension of any sort, but there is a, there is a certain amount of it that's necessary. A lot of it's hmm. necessary. Because our world's changing, the United States is changing. You know, uh, uh, the ethnicity is changing. Uh, the ability for uh, to have the same uh, attributes and opportunities in our businesses is changing. Uh, the cost of capital is so huge now to start businesses. You know, a, a bricks and mortar business causes a lot of uh, calamity when it comes to providing new opportunities for people. Uh, I think that's the reason the digital space has made billionaires and millionaires out of people that didn't have to go out and buy like I, or buy my dad's dealership with bricks and mortar and a mortgage and a floor plan and da 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 da, da. You can do that a lot in the digital world just by your ingenuity and your innovativeness and uh, you can do that. Uh, but uh, as far as the pendulum swing in both ways, Dennis, it always has, it always will. And uh, I think that it will adjust. And I think the people has raised a lot of good issues for us to work on and continually work on. And don't be surprised if it doesn't come up again, don't be surprised if it doesn't come up again. But it depends on, as you mentioned earlier, which way this pendulum swinging. Is it swinging in the middle or to the right or left? So business class listeners, you're hearing again from Rhett Reichert. And Rhett, there is definitely something about the, the way that you are expressing your thoughts and ideas that is very much practical and grounded and and, and and wise, right? Because in a lot of ways, you're almost welcoming the tension into the system, which you don't often hear. You're not going to, you want, there's more talk of peace and prosperity and homogeneity 
as opposed to, again, these ideas of, well, let's introduce some tension into the system. But th- this is where, again, I'm gonna, I try to hide my love affair in, in, about the car business, but this is one of the things that I love about the car business. It's almost that competition kind of breeds then greater ideas, greater relationships. And that, this is kind of how, how, I'm, how I'm interpreting what you're saying. Well, and, and quite frankly, for all of our listeners out there, one of the things that my father always preached to me is, is not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. And if you live your life like that, you know, you're always inquisitive. You're always curious. You're always curious that, you know, maybe things in my business aren't right. Maybe the way we're doing things aren't right. Maybe in the long term, there's a lot of short term things you can do. There's a lot of short-term things you can do for your business. But am I doing this? Is this have long-term effects for my business? And all the business schools, I see them, and I've seen some of the books talk about short-term decisions and long-term effects. That, that's where you have to be able to sit down and surround yourself with people that, that obviously you trust, but also have the same like kind of thinking. You know, and, and you have to accept tension. You have to accept tension in your business because it's healthy for your business. Do you think that Tiger Woods walks down the 18th hole in a tournament and doesn't feel tension when he hits a golf ball? Are you kidding me? There's nothing yeah. much. Do you think Michael Jordan had foul shots to be able to win a game? Doesn't feel tension. Yeah, it's all tension. And, and when it comes to your culture, your company and your social responsibility for your community, that's okay. That tension was very welcome. I'm not a big person for the destruction that was made. I think that was, I think that was made who knows made it anymore. You know, unless I was there, I don't, don't, I see and I try to understand things, but the fact is that there was a big statement being made and the statement that was being made was quite frankly, you know, for a lot of businesses that weren't practicing this and and it wasn't part of their culture and their virtues, it was a good thing. And there'll be other tensions that come up in the future. Uh, This price of gas, if it spikes to four or $5 a gallon, there'll be more tension when it comes to uh, electric vehicles and the trade-off and internal combustion, you know, Uh, I do like the fact that you like the automobile business because this competition we have right now in the automobile industry is so healthy. It's so healthy because, quite frankly, automobile dealers across the United States, the franchise system protects the consumer. It protects the customer. And everybody says, oh, no, because I went in and had a bad experience. Oh, no, I went in and had to wait in line for my service from my dealership. Oh, no, I knew a friend of mine that got ripped off at a dealership somewhere. All these different one-offs, okay? All in all, customers in the high 90 percentiles, as measured by JD Power and other measurement system, people walk in and have a great experience buying a car. So now we have a distribution system that lasts over 100 years, has gone through wars, one World War II, World War II, Vietnam, gone through oil embargoes, gone through depressions, gone through recessions. Now it's gone through this conversion into electric vehicles and automobile dealers across the United States California special are welcoming electric vehicles. Let we've been, by the way, Dennis, we've been servicing, you know, uh, electric vehicles for over 12 years. Yeah. When you take the Toyota Prius, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we are ready and able to do it and look forward. Uh, we just delivered last, last month, Ford did almost 5,000 Mach-E's and a lot of the Teslas are out there and they're a great car, I drove one. Uh, but as I said before, Tesla's been the only girl at the eighth grade dance and there's a bus that just pulled up out front and it's from an all girls school and it's called all the worldwide manufacturers automobiles. And they have 70 models coming out in the next two years 
of all electric vehicles. And it's going to be good for the customer. They're going to have lots of choices and lots of competition. So this is actually a good transition to talk about competition and then also how this affects franchises. Because I, I do think then this is another area that I, I see another bit of tension and, and maybe tension too that I I quite honestly, I don't hear enough of the, this conversation. And that is where the franchise business model meets franchise law. And your colleague, Paul Walzer, talked about this at, at NADA on his opening remarks of being the new chairman of how there needs to be greater innovation in the, in, fr- in the franchise business model. And to your point that Tesla has only been the only girl at the eighth grade dance that has successfully uh, pioneered the direct-to-consumer business model, and obviously that's receiving some pushback. Rivian is trying to parlay what Tesla has been doing. And every time I hear about this innovation of, of a franchise business model, my first thought is, well, you're always going to hit a ceiling on that innovation because franchise law prevents you from actually doing r- any sort of real innovation. One of the things that I know that you've said in a, in a Fortune um, article was a lot of dealerships need to start embodying and exemplifying the Apple Store experience. And this is, this is something that every, everyone in the retail world tends to often say. But specifically for car dealers, I feel like there's a fundamental difference that gets missed. And that is, well, Apple is both the manufacturer and the retailer. A car dealer is only the retailer. They're not the manufacturer. So doesn't at that point, doesn't franchise law and the franchise business model, isn't isn't there going to be a limit to how much you can actually innovate in the franchise business model? Well, that's a multifaceted question you asked me there, but I'll try to address it as I love it, though. You know, and I think you're let, let me get with the basis of thinking, well, if I can take my Apple phone and I can buy directly from Apple. But they still have Apple stores, by the way, so you know that, okay? Then why can't automobiles be doing the same thing? Is because uh, if your phone quits working, you get in your car and you drive to the Apple store, you're getting your car and you go to the mail and you send in your Apple phone. If your car breaks down on the freeway, how are you gonna fix it? You know, distribution, the safety issue has to do with the safety for the consumer. The franchise, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's franchise law, though, that prevents the automaker from directly working with the consumer because according to franchise law, franchise law says that an automobile cannot directly sell or service vehicles to consumers. They have to work with dealers. And so I I tend to look at franchise law in the same way that the uh, what is it, uh, the FCC Section 230, how that regulates Internet companies. And Section 230 was great in the 90s where it protected the the internet companies from you know any wrongdoings of the users but nowadays if all of a sudden these tech companies are able to essentially limit their you know what users can do on their platform well section 230 almost needs to be repealed and modernized i feel the same way about franchise law that franchise law especially here in california where you know volvo was an example of where the california new car dealers association here prevented Volvo from implementing the car sub- subscription program when, again, maybe the consumers didn't really want that yet, but certainly why not offer that to the consumers? Okay. So first of all, you got to understand there's 70 million units that were sold in the, United, in the world last year, 70 million vehicles and roughly 500,000 of them were electric Teslas. Okay. So you got to put things in perspective. 
you know, mm. perspective is Toyota and Volkswagen, and the rest are building, you know, exponentially number more vehicles than that. Okay. Yeah. So the second thing is, is this, is that the franchise automobile system isn't about hindrance. It's about improvement, for example, and safety. Vehicles that are put on the road, we hold the manufacturers to the mat when it comes to producing vehicles that are safe for our consumer. For example, I'm sure you know this, Tesla just finished 31 out of 33 by JD Power, not by anybody else, a completely well-respected marketing company on a quality surveys from customers, okay? There's also been other manufacturers, been 1,300 manufacturers of automobiles. I might've mentioned this in the United States, there's now more than 30. Who's gonna take care of Tesla, these customers in the future, or some of the Rivians or the others that come along if they do happen to hit a bump in the road in manufacturing? Because they haven't been profitable so far in the long term. Very difficult. So the franchise automobile system is that we like online sales. Right now we're delivering Mach-E's to customers online. They can take delivery of those online. We deliver Ford Broncos. The new Hummer's gonna be done that way in other ways. But the devil's in the details when you look at what the Volvo subscription model was in California. We can put that to the side because people have spoken loud and clear, they don't want subscription models. They want to buy a vehicle. They want to own the vehicle or lease the vehicle. They don't want to have to be jumping in and out of vehicles. So the subscription model is is just, it's not even in the discussion. Now, if you want to talk about automation and about automated vehicles or electric vehicles, that's something different. The point is, it's safer. We have 40 million recalls on the road right now. People are running around with that many recalls, 40 million. 280 million cars are registered in the United States, 40 million recalls. Who's gonna perform those? The auto dealer has gotta be able to perform those through 18,000 locations. How many of these other manufacturers gonna be able to perform when they have 41, as I heard from uh, Lordstown, I believe, 41 service centers in the United States of America? Are you kidding me? That's not even one per state. How are they gonna be able to service all these vehicles? Well, we're gonna pick up and deliver them. Well, that hasn't worked out too well with Tesla with the real low customer satisfaction and with no competition. Once the competition comes in, that's what drives these manufacturers to be able to have to have a very efficient distribution model that takes care of customers to make sure they're in safe vehicles. That's what the franchise model does. It keeps customers in safe vehicles and, and and everybody says, well, listen, you know, how come you don't want to have a direct model? Dealers, by the way, on the internet today advertise their lowest price on the internet. You can go to the internet and it has their lowest price. People don't advertise high prices. And with a lot of the manufacturers, they realize that transparency as well as dealers gives the customers that high 90 some percent satisfaction level they have right now. So we love manufacturers of electric vehicles. That's the first thing, Dennis. We love manufacturers who want to build them. We believe if Tesla has such a, such a difficult model to work on, then we find that hard to believe since the last 12 years, we've been working on electric vehicles all along. And I think it's when you take a look in conclusion on the perspectives of Tesla and some of the others, it's kind of sexy to say, do you remember your uncle 10 years ago bought a car from a dealer and he gave him a hard time or he didn't get a good deal and I, we all hate car dealers? Let me tell you something. There isn't a finer group of people you can find than automobile dealers throughout the United States that take care of their communities, that take care of their local, during this last pandemic and kept America rolling during one of the worst disasters in the United States of America when it came to transportation. 
You know, we were the ones, the automobile dealers were open taking care of first responders, police vehicles, emergency vehicles. Trucks deliver 71% of the products in the United States, 71%. So imagine if those trucks weren't operating, you'd go to your refrigerator and you'd have seven out of 10 things not there. People say, well, Riker, you're making that up or that is blasphemy or some sort of puffing or something. No, 71% of the tonnage, uh, the products delivered in the United States are done by trucks. And if they quit rolling, we've got a problem, right? To keep America rolling. That's the reason the CDC, Homeland Security, made automobile dealerships essential to this country. And I couldn't be more proud of what went on last year to keep this America rolling. So if other opportunities come up with direct sales, it's very easy with a franchise system. Let us with our expertise on taking care of customers that have shaken hands with customers for 100 years, let our expertise be take care of customers. Let the manufacturer's expertise be building a really good product that's a good value for customers that we can take care of customers with and protect their investment. A very passionate argument. It's the truth. I would say. It's it's all true. I, I welcome there, anybody that wants to fight it. It's, it's the truth. It's the there, truth. There's there's no doubt. There's no doubt that the franchise model and specifically the dealership is never going away. Like you said, dealerships have fought tooth and nail for decades through tumultuous times, and yet here they are till this day. And if anything, they've even grown more. You know, so there's definitely nothing to suggest that the dealership model would ever go away. My only contention is that for the future, you know, if again, we're looking more forward, I do think that there needs to be a little bit more openness to the modernization of franchise law where you where there is the ability to allow consumers to make decisions for themselves. If, for instance, let's say in this case, if they want to do a subscription and I know there's the argument that says subscriptions don't work. I would I would say two things on that. One is there's probably there hasn't been the real opportunity to provide prescription or subscriptions. But the second thing is there are services and businesses out there that do provide a level of subscription. For instance, the Turos of the world, or even if you sure. start to look at your ride sharing, sure. right? So the sure. subscription model does you can does do that. work. Yeah, I, I'm interrupting you, Dennis, but you can do that. If you want to run some sort of thing, car dealers do it right now. We got a dealer in Columbus that does it. It's a Cadillac dealer. He can do it. anybody can do any of those programs. We're not against that. Yeah, we all we all think it's great. We think the manufacturer shouldn't be doing it. It's like having the fox watch a hen house. Okay, now let the automobile dealers provide the screening to make sure that we hold OEMs. Do you know how many lawsuits have been indoctrinated since the beginning of the 1900s, and how much how much legislation has been fought to hold OEMs responsible? You know, for for the building of their products and the safety of their products. You know, and the disclosure requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Building cars is hard. It's a hard business, and the uh, for us and we are the the we are the uh, proponent of customers. People don't understand that we are a proponent of customers. I can't keep you, Dennis, as a customer if I don't back you up. I got to back you up, and that's what we do with the OEMs. But at the same time, we work with the OEMs to deliver better service and better deliverables. There are many manufacturers, like right now with Ford, as I mentioned, the Mach-E. There are other manufacturers with the Hummer, with electric vehicle, having a required kind of service departments and sales. The Grand Cherokee with Jeep, certain facilities and equipment that we have to do. That's okay. We'll do that to make sure these customers get these high-quality products and have a great, great experience. But the difficulty and the danger you have, and it's like danger Will Robinson, it's like 
Nobody thinks that. it's like a life insurance policy. You never think about it till somebody passes away. Should have bought that term policy, right? The fact is the franchise system keeps our customers investment on the road and we have the parts. You know, under the federal law, these manufacturers have to keep parts for 15 years, especially when it comes to recall parts. If they go bye-bye, Saturn, Pontiac, Ozobiel, Hummer, how much time do you have? You, you could go over them all. And the reason the franchise system was there and it protected these investments by customers out there. And, uh, and, and quite there were 600,000 more used cars sold last year, Dennis, in the United States. Out of the 600,000, new car dealers sold 500,000 of them because that was more and more automobile dealers are going online with their sales. And you know that anyone listening right now knows that people are going more and more online. If you go to your dealer site, it's more and more online and dealers are going to adapt so fast. You won't need a direct sale model. These manufacturers are going to realize, wow, they're a lot better at this than we are. We're going to have to make sure we utilize them. And in fact, the words of Elon Musk, if you read any of his things, he says, at some point in time, we don't think we need dealers right now, but at some point in time, we might need dealers as a distribution model. What more, what more can I say? What more can I say? I'm I think the one one thing that you have said and has resonated with me, in which I, I un unfortunately, I don't have a counter argument to you, and that is that dealers know how to take care of customers. And I, I do believe that to be the case. I do believe that I've I think we've all had experiences with your big conglomerates and try to get them on the phone and you can never get through to them. But certainly if, if you're able to get through at the local level to somebody to have a question answered, it's easier. It's that much easier if there is something local near you to have access to a person, have access to immediate information to address a concern or a question. And so point taken on that. Hey, I, and by the way, Dennis, I encourage everybody on this podcast, please do all your research online and get all the facts together. They're out there. Just do all your homework. Do everything online before you come to your dealership. Let them know kind of what that's the inventory you have. That's a car you have. That's a stock number. That's the equipment. What's going to be my payment? How much is the price going to be on it? About what's going to be my trade, et cetera, all these different things. And then go in and buy the car. Make it easy on yourself. Make it easy on yourself. It's like everything else. You don't want to go in like the first day of class in college and try to take college without a syllabus. You got to kind of know, kind of know what you're taking, right? You got to know what books you got to buy. You got to know all these facts. Same thing applies to do, doing the automobile transaction. Well, you certainly express a point that I do think that again, with with the progress of technology and the access to information and and data being utilized, it does seem to be the case that more customers inflict pain on themselves oh. on the buying experience than the actual dealers used to do to them. So, Oh, I, but, I, I know time's got effort, but I, I, I have more customers that buy a vehicle from our dealership. We do about 15,000 cars a year, more customers that are unhappy has nothing to do with the transaction has to do with, they don't like the way the seats fit their body and they're uncomfortable. They bought it online. They didn't actually sit in the car or they don't like the fact there's a blind spot. They didn't know there was a blind spot in the right rear. They saw it, they thought it was pretty on the internet and they came in and bought it. We did the transaction, didn't want to demo, didn't want to drive it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like trying on a suit. I mean, you got to put it on. It's like putting on a pair of shoes. How many shoes do you order online? You return because they don't fit you right. Same thing applies to an automobile, man. That's a huge investment. You know, right. you know take your time. Take your time, go visit the dealer, go ahead and get all your information, get online, you know, compare them side by side, but actually sit in the particular vehicle you're going to buy, 
take them for a drive because that's what you do with cars. You drive them. You don't sit in them. Okay. You drive these well, vehicles. If, if you're yeah. my wife, you sit in them. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Now, so, Brett, so we talked about now the franchise business model meeting or going head to head with franchise law. Let's now talk specifically about the franchise business model, because this is certainly a sticking point amongst dealers and automakers and that being the stair-step program. So maybe first off, if, could you, in your own words, explain to our business class listeners what the stair-step program is? Good. I'll explain the stair-step thing. First thing is we talk about franchise models. And I talk to a lot of legislators, both on Capitol Hill and our state government. And I explained to them, I said, franchise model. Let me see. What's a franchise model? Let's see. McDonald's. McDonald's is a franchise model. And McDonald's is taking more and more of the corporate stores and making them private, right? Uh, let's think of another one. Subway, that's a franchise model. Yeah, more and more of those are being entrepreneurs, just like you and I. Entrepreneurs, they have the ability to put their own blood, sweat, and tears into something and build something for the future. So franchise models work just on the car business. They work across a multitude of different products. Uh, they work, you know, if, 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 they, if they work. Uh, the second my, thing, my, my my only contention with franchise model, my my last point on this, my only contention with franchise model, and again, this is just from my own personal uh, thoughts and experience. I I'm I'm not a fan of protectionism. I believe that pr protectionism is antithetical to the free market, and franchise law it does exactly that. It it's it's a protectionist uh, policy. And so again, that's where when you do when you do want to have some sort of direct to consumer, there's no such way that could ever happen, which is fine. Again, that's that's what the law is. That's that's what it is. Well, no, that's not fine because I hear your argument, Dennis. And the argument okay. is that, but the fact is you have to think about franchise laws have been around for a long time, you know, decades. And they were all heard by legislators on Capitol Hill and your state governments for decades by thousands of legislatures and the arguments for and against have been heard by thousands of legislators. And just like every other law we have on the books, you know, that are heard by thousands of legislatures and hopefully, you know, they come out with the right formula, right? It's the right formula that comes up. Manufacturers have a lot of rights as a manufacturer that provides franchises. You know, Ford has a lot of, a lot of control over my dealership, you know, what kind of signage I put out in front of it, what kind of signs I put. I mean, there's a lot of- The facility lot of itself. And, and like yeah. Subway and McDonald's, they all got controls over all those different things. So I think that, you know, when you take a look at the franchise model, it's, it's spoken to just recently having to do with direct sales. Well, that's because the manufacturers that want to produce product that don't want to play on an even playing field. How would you like to be Ford Motor Company or General Motors or every other manufacturer that for over a hundred years has been playing on this level playing field, take it, responding to customers needs and wants, building products, et cetera, et cetera. And then a new kid plays on the block and says, you know, I got a battery in mine and I don't think I need to play by the same rules that have been looked at by thousands of legislators to make cars safe on the highways for consumers and guarantee their safety in the future in the event of recalls. Now you've got is a problem with public policy because you're putting people at risk. And that is my issue behind the franchises. One of the issues. The other issue you talk about, these stair steps, and they are like the Antichrist. I mean, they are horrible. First of all, they force dealers into lying to customers because a customer comes in to buy a car. 
is Thursday. How much is a car? It's $30,000. You saw it on the internet. That's my best price. Okay. Well, I'm going to think about it. I'll come back. I'll see you on Monday. They come back on Monday. Well, I talked to my wife. Everything's good. We want to buy it. Well, I can't sell to you for that because the manufacturer cut off the rebate on me because it was a stair step. In other words, the manufacturer, depending on your sales volume, hits a target number for you to hit. And if you hit it, then retroactively, you get money back on the cars before that you sold. It's called a stair step. And the problem is it creates a lot of horrendous relationships you have. People say, well, how? I was at the country club and my buddy just bought a Suburban $2,000 less than you priced to me, Bob. And I'm going to, a rat, and I'm going to say, well, at the time, I wasn't at the stair step this manufacturer gave me. And that is exactly my margin, 4%. And then they're going to say, well, the other guy hit his stair step before you. So now he gave me the $2,000 he got and you're a, and you're a bum. Wow. Isn't that healthy for everybody? Creates distrust among the consumer, creates distrust among the dealer body, but the manufacturer gets to sell another car. Whoop ding. You know, what does that really do for the industry? So I've been, I've been if you heard my uh, speech last year in February, I talked about corruption, obstruction, and disruption. And that obstruction are these stair steps. They're horrible. Now, think about this for a minute. Highest CSI in the industry ever this past year, 2020, during COVID, highest customer satisfaction, all manufacturers combined, by a margin, not by like a, a tenth of a point, by a margin. Why? There's no stair steps because they didn't have production. They didn't overproduce. And when they overproduce, they put these stupid stair steps in that really hurt dealers and our relationship with our customers. They are completely counterproductive and it's done by a few manufacturers or some won't even do it. The few manufacturers think they're gonna get a little bump in their sales because they want the stock market to see that they're keeping up with the market or this, the investors or they're keeping the plans to run. it's the most insane thing I've ever seen. As soon as, they, as soon as they get rid of them forever, the happier every dealer in the country is gonna be. Everybody thinks everybody's a big proponent for them. No, we're a proponent for transparency. Have the manufacturer deliver us the cars. Let us take care of our customers and make sure the cars are safe on the roads. That's what we want to do. It's really simple. It's not complicated. How, so, give me context. How long has this, how how long have stair step programs been around, and where does things stand? Because it does seem as if I've heard this conversation at least for a decade of the stair step program. I haven't been in the business as long as you have, but you know, how long has it been going around, and then? Where are we now with it? Because I feel like this has been such a hot topic for dealers that it it's it still gets them all boiled up to to know that this program still exists. Well, well, the dealer attitude surveys by the uh, NADA uh, does every year. We get the a big long survey it takes twenty minutes. All the dealers fill them out twice a year, and we, we try to ex we try to explain this to the manufacturer. You know, they're our friends, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're partners in this thing, right? I got to tell you, these, these stair steps started quite a while ago. Think about this, Dennis. I, I challenge a few of the, of the listeners today. Go out there and look back 10 years and look at the musical chairs that's been played from CEOs of automobile manufacturers worldwide. Look at the musical chairs. I mean, okay. they all get in there. They want to make an imprint, right? They want to make something happen. Everybody's looking for them to move the number. They didn't, they didn't hire this new CEO to come in there and make same thing the way they were. They hired these new CEOs to make things better. Okay. 
First thing they do is they put some sort of a ludicrous stair steps program in there. And all it does is create all this animosity among dealers, animosity among customers. And I can't find one redeeming value of it other than the manufacturer sells an extra vehicle. And some dealers, quite frankly, if they have a low objective, are thinking, you know, I was against it last year, but these objectives are so low, I'm kind of for it this year. To all my dealer friends out there, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Customers want transparency. They want the same deal today as they're gonna get tomorrow and they, they got yesterday. They want the same numbers. They wanna have something up front of them. They, quite frankly, customers, no matter how many times we tell them, I can't convince my golfing friend there that the $2,000 less was something that I wasn't gonna do from, a, from, a, from my margin. They think that I was, I'm not telling them the truth. Come on, so do you on this broadcast. You're thinking we're making it up, but we're being forced into this foxhole and we got no other way out of it, you know? So that's the reason I personally am personally against any kind of a stair-step program. You know, there's incentives, a lot of different incentives you can get dealers to sell vehicles. You can have uh, trips that the managers can win or the dealer can win, et cetera, et cetera. You can get recognition awards. Uh, you can get it per vehicle you sell other than having to hit a number and make it retro, all these different things. Just make it part of the price. It makes it easy. Just like I'm talking to you, Dennis, it makes it easy. I can tell you without any hesitation, that is the price and you can come buy the vehicle. But don't, these stair steps are not healthy. They're not healthy for our customers. They're not healthy for the OEMs and they're definitely not healthy for the dealers. Business class listeners, you're listening to Rhett Reichert, the dealer principal of Reichert Automotive based in Columbus, Ohio. Well, let me let me put you at a let me put a, a fork in the road here for you then, Rhett, sure. with regards to this franchise business model. And maybe let's put a stamp on it from here. So tell me then, fork in the road. You can go left or you can go right. If the situation were presented to you that says, hey, Rhett, I understand and I feel your compassion. Uh, of the stair step program, and you know what? We uh, let's say I'm one of the automakers, or I'm one of the lobbying people from the automakers. And I say, hey, Rhett, you know, fine, we'll remove the stair step program. That that gets you all heated and boiled, and yeah, it's not fair for the customer. We'll remove that, but you let us go direct to consumer. What do you say? Well, I already talked about direct consumer. It's not safe for the customer. It's not safe for their investment. You know, but would it's, you? it's just it's just not it's just not good. My, I would say this: if you're going to take your, they call it consumer incentive money. If you're going to take $100 million, some major manufacturers, that's what it is every year, or, or even more, $900 million for some. I say, just drop the price of your car. Make it easy. <laughs> just, just drop the price of the car. Make it easy. Just make it easy. People want it easy. They want an easy, fun thing to come and buy. Fun. Car dealerships should be fun. Uh, culturally here at Arcade, we try to make everything fun. Make it fun and easy, simple and easy. That's all you're asking when you're asking, oh, we want to go direct. You just want a fun and easy, simple. I want to go direct. I want to put my numbers in the computer. I want somebody to deliver the car to me. Dealers do that now. We're delivering about 17% of our cars to customers. It's no big deal. But most people want to come in and look at it. They want somebody to explain the technology to it. You know, you know, people buy cars on Carvana, Good Luck or Varum. When they deliver that two-year-old vehicle and it's got all the technology, who explains that to you? Who shows right. you how to how to work all this technology? What the, well, tow, truck, that, the tow truck driver? 
you know, you know, I mean, you know, come on. That's certainly another topic of where I I do also get the sense that a lot of these quote unquote disruptors, such as your Carvanas and Vrooms, uh, have unfairly, um, you know, have have unfairly put more stress on the dealership because again, these are customers that did not buy from the dealership, but the dealership still has to represent the automaker. And so this is where it becomes difficult. You know, I, when I used to work at a dealership, this was the case where when customers used to come in when they didn't buy from your store and now they didn't, you know, Carvana's wasn't as popular back then, but CarMax for instance was. So people would come in, bring their Audi into the store and they would you know, asked us sales guys to to do a demo. And of course we would do it because we're representing the dealership and we're representing the automaker, but there's no doubt any salesperson, and you, I'm sure you would probably even attest to this, right? That like at some point you're like, eh, I, I cringe just a little bit because I wish you were my customer as opposed to you being CarMax's customer coming into the store. Uh, not really. It just depends on the business and the company. Our company, culturally, we got a black Mustang convertible Carvana back there and we're doing work on it. <laughs> you know, you know mm. as a customer is a customer. As I said before, we're not in the transportation business. We're in the customer business, you know. And, and if you're if you're in the if you're in the Lord, Lordstown motor business, you're building electric vehicles, you're in the vehicle building business. That's what you do. You're not in the customer business. We're in the customer business. So now I know what you said about Urkin in the past, but as I said before, I mean, you know, automobile uh, uh, franchise automobile dealers sell the monster portion of all the used cars in the United States. I mean, you know, anyhow, and Varum can take out all their horrible ads they want to take. You know, uh, obviously they can operate a business without profitability, and so can Carvana, and so can some of the others. You know, uh, but that that's up to them. Is is that a long term business model when you're not making money? You explained to me, we have business, we got some people out in the business world listening in. Is that a long-term business model? Is that your strategy? Well, There's a strategy just to bail out at some point in time, sell to somebody else, have them fracture out the assets, monetize all those things. Everybody gets a good buck out of the deal. You know, I mean, no, I th- I, I, that's, I, that's, that's not Ford Motor Company. That's not General Motors. That's not Toyota. That's not them. No. Yeah, certainly. I, I do think that you, you you brought up an excellent point in the long-term sustainability of some of these companies. I mean, a company like Carvana, th- I, I do think that they have set nearly perhaps a dangerous precedent of a business model that is only sustainable if you are in the capital markets, if you're in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you're not there, you, you're there, there's no sustainability to your business. And to your point, the long-term automakers, the Fords, the GMs, the Chevys, Toyotas, these are all sustainable businesses. They're, they've demonstrated, you know, a business for decades and decades on how to perfect a vehicle and, and become profitable. Hey, thanks, Dennis. That's a great point. And the fact is that when you think about it, they're pretty smart in a couple of things. You know, the first thing is, is that uh, they got regional uh, facilities to be able to recondition these vehicles. So where do they get their vehicles? They buy them at auctions. Uh, the cars that we send to auctions are the vehicles we basically don't want, okay, are the vehicles that we've already inspected and they just don't number out as far as being able to be what they call book value or MMR or whatever it may be. And uh, we send a lot of these vehicles or maybe, and so on and so forth. And they can deliver them to somebody all digital and they don't have the bricks and mortar as far as locations to service them because they only got to recake reconditioning department, they don't have to do any of the warranty or any of the recall work, all those things. Electric vehicles have recalls today, 
Electric vehicles are going to have recalls tomorrow. And if you think electric vehicles are going to have recalls, autonomous vehicles are going to have recalls. And a lot of them aren't going to be done over the air. Mark my words. Here's a fact a lot of people don't understand. A Ford F-150 in 2015, not the new 2021, the 2015 Ford F-150 had more lines of code in it than a Boeing 747 jet. Sit down yeah, and that. think about that one. So, you know, you need to have people that have the knowledge to work on these things and the ability to do uh, repairs on them, just not what Carvana's doing them dropping them off with a tow truck in your yard and saying, hopefully you really like it. And by you're really smart, you bought it and you paid more for that vehicle, undoubtedly, unquestionably, un, un, unquestionably that anybody else significantly more money for it just for the fact they created this mirage that if you see something online at a car dealership and you come in to buy it, that uh, you're going to have somebody stuff you in a room and dress up like a clown and put a gun to your head. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. You know, it's just ridiculous. No, there's there's so many so many dealerships, and you're going to see a consolidation going on, Dennis. Right now, uh, the public companies have already announced that they're going to go more and more. They're going to buy more and more dealerships. A lot of the bigger private companies, like myself, private cap cost family, buying more dealerships in the thing, and we're spreading more of the better behavior and the better transactions and the better transparency across this industry. I think you're going to see in the next five to ten years, it's just going to get better and better and better and better. And better. However, better can be interpreted uh, at the dealerships across the United States, and then uh, it's going to take people like Carvana and Varum uh, learning through these misnomers and this uh, uh, misdirected uh, examples they give uh, of what really goes on in car dealerships across country every day. By the way, in the tune of about 17 million uh, new cars or 16.8 million and over 14 million used cars. I mean, I guess if you take 31 million transactions, you're gonna find a few people that probably didn't have a good experience. You know, I, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm just saying, if you look at the numbers, the numbers show record high customer satisfaction as measured by the manufacturers, not the dealers, record high uh, warranty repairs and uh, recall repairs done for customers, the highest customer satisfaction in, the, in, in history. So everybody's getting better every day. And your initial question is because this new digital edge and aging COVID accelerated all that. And I think it's good for our customers. Well, and to your point of uh, you and Riker Automotive going on a, a buying spree. First off, kudos. Uh, I, I wish you all the best. I, I, I want to follow your progress as you do acquire a new store or another business. I had a prior guest on the show, um, Kelly LaFontaine of LaFontaine Automotive Group, expressed the same thing. So it seems as if that's a, a lot of the sustainable, profitable, good auto groups are in this buying spree. So I, I know I will be personally watching that and following that progress along. But Mr. Reichert, last question of the show here for you, sir. This is the time for bedroom session, business class listeners, where I get to get very intimate with my guests. So Mr. Reichert, I know already, and I kind of learned my lesson from actually when I had uh, interviewed Kelly LaFontaine, as a matter of fact, that dealers are very involved in the community and there's many different organizations that you support. I want you to take a moment and I guess somewhat erase all of that. Put yourself in the shoes that where you are till this day that you are looking to make the greatest impact ever 
So my question to you is, what would you like to accomplish with your money that would be most meaningful to you? Well, I think I just finished as chairman of the National Auto Dealer Association, and I think that's probably the pinnacle of the automobile industry as far as um, having an effect on the industry and the other dealers. So um, at 64, I just finished this this past year, and I still stay involved with our state association. Uh, what we do with our money and our family is we have uh, eight family members in our business and each one of them decides in what type of uh, charity or nonprofit or uh, uh, how they how we should direct our family uh, foundation money. Uh, that being said, it's because they have to be an active part of that entity. Uh, we just don't write checks. So we're big with the Ronald McDonald House and my son, Ricky, or so my nephew, Ricky's part of that. I'm currently uh, my 22nd year treasurer of the Franklin County Convention Authority. We run the convention center and our downtown venue for the Blue Jackets uh, for the arena and all the parking and the hotels and things like that. And that's kind of a public service thing I do with it. Uh, we take our money as far as when it comes to different entities, uh, Reagan Reichert, another one of our family members, she has something that she's in love with too. And if she's part of that organization, then we lean forward in that organization. Uh, so that's how we do it in our family. Our foundation isn't run by one person that kind of decides where all the money's going. We have each one of the family members have to take an active role in the organization that we're supporting. And that's good, that's good advice to all those uh, young entrepreneurs out there that have, feel as though they're being pulled a million different directions because there's a million different things we can do in our community, right? But there's a few that your skill set and what you know how to do well can fit with this organization and you can make a huge difference in that organization other than your money. The money helps and it's important, but your time and your expertise and your efforts you'll feel so much better about it afterwards because you know that you did something for a long-term legacy for that organization other than writing a check. So that's how we look at this in our family and myself uh, in the future. And we always have had it because that's how my dad taught us how to think. He taught us how to think, always think long-term. Don't let a, a good short-term decision ruin your long-term legacy. And uh, we, we make sure that's part of the, part of our, uh, formula, participation, yeah. as well as the money. Yeah. So uh, the it makes sense to have this formula and almost this systematic way of approaching uh, the manner in which yourself and the rest of the family and the business get involved with the community. However, is there anything specific, though, for you? You know, again, I think the, one of the reasons why I like to ask this question is because I was previously involved in fundraising and I would always ask people for a million dollars. And it's not easy to ask someone for a million dollars, you know. So at some point there w there came a time where you had to ask them again, what, what was it that they wanted to accomplish with their money? Because that money obviously was going to last far beyond, you know, when they left this earth. So then we would always ask the question, what would you like to accomplish with your money that would be most meaningful to you? Is there, is there anything that comes? That's a good, well, listen, Dennis, that's a good example for everyone out here when it comes to everybody thinks they will, they got a will, they got an estate plan, right? Yeah, but, uh, maybe, but, it, but, but they're, they're different. You know, there's no reason to support entities. You know, there's a lot of reasons people say, well, I'm going to leave this much money to this university after I pass. Okay. 
Well, we found it more important that we like to be part of this, be part of that university in the meantime, you know, with our uh, fiscal support as well as our relationships that we developed to be able to, as a fundraiser yourself, you understand your fundraising was built on relationships. That's what got it done for you. Not letters, you can send a million letters out a day. It's all this, that, that spider-like relationships. And we find taking our time is my, we do a Mac concert here in Columbus for St. Jude's Hospital. It's the largest uh, nonprofit uh, uh, entity in the state of Ohio. We give 100% of the proceeds to St. Jude. We under, underwrite 64 music acts that come to Columbus. We've had, uh, you know, all the way from Vince Gill to, to uh, the Steel Drivers and I mean, you know, the country, country bluegrass music, country gentlemen, any of them. We had them all. We have them here every year except for last year with COVID. We underwrite it and then we take 100% of the proceeds and give it to St. Jude's Hospital. But our family takes an active role in that event. You know, we take part of the planning, uh, subscribing supporters, subscribing uh, sponsors, et cetera, et cetera, and partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is our formula. Our formula is uh, one at a time, each family member and building up their, their, what means a lot to them. Does that mean a lot to you then? It absolutely does. You know, my, okay. Okay. my, uh, my, uh, my mother had cancer. Uh, 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 Daryl Adkins, who, who runs the event, his daughter Mandy died of uh, a brain tumor at 19 years of age. And we're very close to their family, still are. And until something like that hits you, it doesn't wake you up a little bit. And it woke us up and we sat down with Daryl. I said, hey, Daryl, you know the music industry. We know the marketing industry. And let's start the uh, Mac Musicians Against Childhood Cancer. You can Google it, check it up. We're going to have at the end of this July, uh, some of the best bands in the United States come in. We have thousands of people to show up for it. And it's a four-day event. And it's, it means a lot to myself, means a lot to my brother. And we make sure it's success, really successful, you know. And that's what it's all about. Putting, I get more satisfaction when it's all over and I see everybody exhausted. And we've had a successful event that raised the kind of money and the kind of support we need for certain, for certain entities like St. Jude's Children's Hospital. You know, and we also, with Children's Hospital in Columbus, with the Hundy Dealers, we write a six-figure check with them too. The Hundy Dealers got together. We made sure that's part of our program. So... Uh, there's no, uh, our family doesn't have just one entity and that's it. We try to participate in everything in the community we can, which involves our family members to take a position of, to make sure that that event or that type of uh, nonprofit is successful. So let me, let me, re let me see if I could rearticulate sure. what you just said, because I actually think this is the first time I've ever heard something like this before. And I actually, I, I think it's actually very brilliant because it's it's a different way that I've I've ever heard someone express this, and that is, you know, ultimately for you, the biggest way you could um, accomplish something with your money is really again through this systematic way of ensuring that not just through you but through this system and that system being your family that they continue to contribute to give to get involved in that which is around them that would that which impacts them and so for you that's what means the most absolutely because to perpetuate the legacy right takes the next generation to do it and you know i'm not going to cure cancer during my lifetime you know we're not going to cure uh, uh the problem of children's hospital with the ronald mcdonald house you know we're going to stop all these children that are sick uh, we're not going to stop that but the legacy of the involvement in the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that and the generation after that 
has to be part of the legacy, you know, and the legacy has to be started somewhere and has to be involved with. And, and quite frankly, you'll get more success and involvement uh, with that uh, with that entity uh, with with your expertise. You know, I mean, I think about it. We got eight family members in our business. We got them all college educated and they're all smart. You know, and they got families and they got children. And they have special interests in that. That's what they want to get involved with. That's where our family will get involved with because, you know, that's what they're going to put their heart and soul into. It's not me as a patriarch of the family saying, oh, no, we're going to go do this. That doesn't carry water for generations. What carries generation water for generations, each one of these people starting something that will last for generations. Amen. Amen. Mr. Reichert, thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing all of your passion, all of your knowledge, all of your information with my business class listeners. Any parting words, sir? Oh, none. I got it. I listened to all my email. I've had all 18,000 dealers last year use my email. It's just my name, Rhett Reichert at Reichert.com. More welcome to hear any comments. You disagree with me, agree with me, uh, whichever it may be. As I said before, I like a little bit of friction. It makes me think, you know, it makes me think, what if? You know, there's always a better way. And uh, as I said before, not what you don't know, it's what you do know that just ain't so. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I do want to listen to that. And uh, just remember that uh, do your homework when you go, when you buy an automobile, just like you do your homework when you buy a house. You do your homework. Go do your homework before you go buy a car. And you're going to be real happy on the way dealers are going to be operating today and even better every day. They just, this digital age has uh, really pushed transparency and it's really pushed, uh, uh, good behavior has really pushed a great, fun experience uh, f- for you to, to go buy a car. Hopefully, you enjoy yourself. Thank you, Business Dan. class listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsint, kambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo, salute, and saugi to the customer experience. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please do provide Wisco Weekly a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be here again next week. Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options, or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.